Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Before we get to part one of my interview with percussionist Jan Williams, I just wanted to take a moment and say thanks for listening. Please consider leaving a rating and or a review on iTunes. And also, please don't hesitate to get in touch with me. You can find my contact information on my website, john-lane.com. I know that our audience for the show has been growing, and I'd love to hear from some of you. If you're just finding the show or have been listening for the last few months, you may have noticed that the shows are slowing a bit in frequency. It turns out that having a one-year-old at home, along with my full-time teaching job and plenty of creative work, uh, turns out that I just don't have as much time to do the show as I'd like. But it has given so much to me, and I really I have no plans of stopping. I just wanted to note that there will be a little more gap between the shows. I'm... My goal right now is to try to get one to two per month. We've got some great shows coming up and some really terrific ones that I have here to edit, so stay tuned. If you're just discovering Standing in the Stream, I would recommend going back and checking out some previous episodes. And again, those are on my website, john-lane.com. Now on to our first part of the interview with Jan Williams. And, uh, you know, this might be a little bit of inside baseball for non-musicians out there, but Jan is truly a living legend in our field and has worked alongside some of our most brilliant modern composers. It was truly an honor to speak with him. And now on to part one of my chat with Jan Williams. Jan Williams has had a brilliant and multifaceted career as a percussionist, arts administrator, educator, conductor, and composer. He has been deeply involved in contemporary music and has worked closely with luminary composers. Composers who have written music for him include John Cage, Morton Feldman, Lucas Foss, Frederick Zhevsky, and many, many more. As a percussionist, he has performed worldwide and has been an important proponent for the development of percussion literature. Jan spent much of his career at the University of Buffalo, where he was one of the first class of the Creative Associates in the 1960s. He went on to have a long and distinguished career there as a faculty member and chair of the music department. While in Buffalo, he spent nine years co-directing the North American New Music Festival, and served as artistic director for the Center for the Creative and Performing Arts. Jan, it's an honor to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Uh, my pleasure, John. I'd like to start these conversations always by going back and getting a bit of background. So feel free to take us back wherever you'd like, but I'd be uh, curious to hear the story of how you got started as a percussionist. Okay, well... We can do that. I'll try to uh, to be brief and uh, not get sidetracked, but I started, uh, I'm from Utica, New York, and started studying uh, drums in the fourth grade, typical kind of thing. With uh, back, in, back in those days, everybody in the class, when you got to be fourth or fifth grade, you know, everybody got a chance to play a musical instrument, and they 
they would hand them out and you'd take uh, take lessons. And uh, in my case, they started, uh, they, they uh, distributed the instruments by uh, last name. So by the time they got to the W's, all that was left was a pair of drumsticks and a practice band. <laughs> uh, that's how I started with drumming. And uh, my parents were both uh, musicians. Through My mother taught piano and my father was a self-taught kind of jazz uh, cocktail music pianist. Um, uh, and uh, as soon as I showed that uh, I was serious. Yeah, my father got me to a really good teacher, George Claskins in Utica. He's a terrific musician and he taught at uh, Syracuse University as associate uh, part-time. But any, in any case, that's how it got going. But my background basically was at home we listened to a lot of jazz and not much classical music. Hmm. But uh, that's, that's how it started. And, uh, you know, went to uh, uh, started playing with the Utica Orchestra and with my teacher and really got turned on to classical music. Probably the first piece that really shook me up was the Bartok Sonata for two pianos and percussion. I didn't quite know what to make of that at the time. When I heard that recording, I'll tell you, it was pretty, pretty wild. But uh, hmm. after high school, you know, my teachers all... Uh, all encouraged me to do anything except music because you can't make any money doing making uh, as a musician. So I went to engineering school for uh, one semester and hated it and dropped out and came home and and then went to Eastman for a year and then transferred to Manhattan School uh, in New York, uh, principally because while at, while at Eastman. I was turned on to, uh, or I discovered several articles coming out of the New York about Paul Price and all these crazy concerts he was doing with music of John Cage and the percussion ensemble as such. And I'd never heard of such a thing. It, it's, it, and, I, and I wanted to get to New York anyway. You know, it was just something that I wanted to do. Yeah. And then, so five years in New York, a couple of degrees from Manhattan, and... Uh, and I got the uh, <clears throat> job in Buffalo. Uh, I wanted to ask a question about that time that you were in Manhattan with Paul Price. Uh, famously, Paul Price is one of the pioneering uh, folks to have created a percussion ensemble program in academia. And uh, at least that's that's sort of what I know uh, about Paul Price. But one of the things that you wrote about him, I read an article and you were sort of talking about these early years. And you said that he would absolutely never say that it can't be done. That, that percussionists should work with composers and try out their ideas, and, and, and that's the way that the, the literature is going to, to develop and move forward. So I wonder what he instilled in you in those, in those years. He instilled in all of us, and uh, I think uh, that sense of, um, of dedication, that we needed a repertoire, us percussionists, a legitimate repertoire, and encouraged us heavily to to investigate new pieces, look for new pieces, study uh, what's out there, encourage uh, your fellow 
students uh, or composers you might know to write pieces for the genre. We were never allowed to uh, program transcriptions on our recitals. Um, we might study transcriptions for, pedago for pedagogic regions during lessons, but uh, for Marimba most notably probably, but, but otherwise that, that was his mission and he instilled, uh, instilled that in, in us. And, and it was through the work of the percussion ensemble that it was most, uh, uh, where that was mostly realized that he, he uh, you know, he was really, really a pioneer in, in that. Uh, he had a, basis, a basic repertoire of pieces that he had acquired early on, pieces that no one really knew about, pieces by uh, Lou Harrison and John Cage and Henry Collins. He had discovered while he was a student in Cincinnati, I think. Oh, wow. And uh, he, uh, so he had this, and I think those were the pieces that that convinced him that, that uh, when he was at University of Illinois to, uh, to really concentrate on repertoire building and percussion ensemble particularly. Uh, so that, that's, you know, that's, that's what we did. And, Wow. It was great. Great, great, fantastic. So, uh, so after you left Manhattan, you became a creative associate in Buffalo. And uh, I was looking at the, you know, the roster for these creative associates. It's it's just unbelievable the pool of talent that was there at that time. It must have been an incredible gathering of creative people. Can you talk about your time there before you transitioned over to be a faculty member? Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, I could talk a lot about that. Uh, <laughs> I uh, I think I got that telegram on the day I gave my master's recital at Manhattan. I got a telegram from University of Buffalo saying I I was uh, accepted as a as a member of this new group at the University of Buffalo. It was started on a Rockefeller grant and Lucas. Foss was and the, and then the and the chairman of the music department at the time, Alan Sapp, also Cincinnati connection. Wow. Uh, Alan was dean in Cincinnati, I think, after leaving Buffalo. But uh, in any case, uh, that the group was started and they brought in sixteen players from all over the world, actually, mostly Americans. But there were composers and composers. A hyphenated, you know, composer percussionist, composer pianist, most notably, uh, in that first class, George Crum was uh, uh, was a member of the group as a pianist, wow. and uh, wrote several pieces uh, while he was in Buffalo for a year. It was a one year possible renewal for two, kind of thing. It was kind of like a postdoc. It took a while for us to everything to settle down and get oriented uh, since it all happened pretty quickly, but we all found it uh, our path through that, those, those first couple years. And we did a series of concerts. All we had to do really was present a series of concerts here in Buffalo at the Albright Knox Art Gallery. And then uh, they, we were, would repeat those concerts, maybe five a year at um, Carnegie Recital Hall in New York. So it gave us exposure in New York, which which was really great. Yeah. Uh, John Bergamo actually was the other percussionist 
with me, he actually got the job and recommended I I do it, and uh, so they hired me. Wow. John and I was here for John was here for a couple of years, and then he went to to uh, University of Washington, I think. But in any case, it was really fabulous. I mean, uh, besides the evenings for the music concerts, uh, which Lucas Foss was the overall artistic director. Besides that, the Creative Associates, we ourselves organized a series of recitals at the university where we could do anything we wanted. And some people did old music, new music, great, great concerts. All this is documented in the university archives. And, yeah, uh, that, that's one of the great things if, if anyone is listening is interested in this history. A lot of that uh, photographs and, and things are available even online in the, uh, the archives at the University of Buffalo. Yes, the uh, the university. Ever since those, the center started nineteen sixty four. Since that time, the library at the university was always very, very, very supportive, in in uh, making sure that they had all the scores of the pieces we were doing and uh, collected all the uh, programs and recordings and uh, so all that stuff is there. And the archive is really rich in terms of uh, of of those. Years, both the, the the printed materials and the recorded materials. But a lot of that stuff is on online. I just, as I was, we were chatting here. I just pulled up, and they have a. There's a document that I'll I'll link to. It's the Center for the Creative and Performing Arts, uh, commemorating the 50th anniversary. And there are just tons of programs and uh, reviews from some of these concerts that you're just mentioning. I'll, I'll make sure and include this in the in the show notes because it's really fascinating to go back and look at at all of this, uh, at all of that stuff. Yeah, and the thing was, John and I, when we first arrived, we had just come from Manhattan School, and and we uh, decided to do on our own ad hoc a kind of organize a, some kind of percussion ensemble. So we got a bunch, put the word out, and we had a lot of non-music majors and. Uh, who signed up, and that's when the the percussion ensemble started. So we were doing that sort of on our own. Uh, I stayed. I was given an offered a uh, faculty position uh, three years in, I think, in '67. Uh, uh, but the very fortunate for me was that it was understood, always understood, that I would still be involved with the creative associates and and uh, all that work I did with there would be reflected in my in my evaluations etc mm. so my my performing as well as teaching uh, was uh, both those elements were still were still very uh, important for me and I uh, you know and the and uh, there wasn't much of a percussion program then, but it we managed managed to develop it into and get a master's degree going, and it, yeah, it was, it was so rather thirty what, some years. But the center actually lasted seventeen years until nineteen eighty. So, and what? Why did the center close, or what was the it, reason for it? It was an uphill battle with um, financing. Uh, you know, it's State University took a big hit in the mid '70s, uh, fundings, and uh, you know there were fewer and fewer creative associates every year. Uh, the original deal was the original Rockefeller grant 
was to last a few years, and then the university was to gradually pick up the cost of the center. And that really didn't happen. And so there were few, as I said, fewer and fewer creative associates over the years. And, and uh, uh, at a certain point, I think there were only like two creative associates, and it was just decided that it had its run, and and that was going to be it. Yeah. Uh, that, that was when uh, Morton Feldman was the director. Okay, okay. Uh, so you mentioned John Bergamo as being the other percussionist. Of course, that name, many percussionists will know that name and probably associate it with uh, the program out at Cal Arts and all of his work in world music and right. and that. So uh, did you uh, remain close with him over the years? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, I mean, we didn't see each other that often, but I brought him to Buff Buffalo several times to work with students. And uh, yeah, we stayed in touch. Yeah, John got actually turned on to that whole world music thing here in Buffalo. I remember the day <laughs> he heard a concert by uh, Indian musicians. I think it was um, Ala Raka was the was the was the tabla player, and there there was a kind of an Indian music week sponsored not by the music department by some other or student organizations or whatever. John went to all those concerts and boy, at that, after that, he was, he was just, uh, became extremely excited about, uh, Indian music, particularly and learning tabla. And so I think that's where that came out of. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. And he was a fabulous jazz drummer too, an improviser. And, uh, so he was really an all around great player. Yeah. Great. So uh, I want to transition to talk a little bit about these uh, some of these composers that you worked so closely with over the years, and uh, I thought it would be good. I made a list of just a few names, uh, so I thought it would be good if I just maybe mentioned a name and you could you could talk about what it was like to work with each of these uh, people, or uh, if if someone else comes to mind, feel free to to jump in. Um, the first one that I would start with is John Cage. So what was it like to work with Cage? Well. <laughs> You know, I I worked, I don't know, working with John Cage is not pro probably not a good description of the relationship in the sense that I knew we met. I heard him and Tudor in New York when I was a student. And when, we, when it came to his, his music, I was so excited about doing the percussion pieces, the early pieces that I started programming a lot of his music here in Buffalo. And so, and then John came to Buffalo. We invited John to come to Buffalo many, many, many times. And he always enjoyed coming here to hear his music done. And so I played a tremendous amount of his music for him. I mean, he would come to performances, but it wasn't like I spent time working on specific pieces with him you know, back and forth kind of a thing. It I was, see. It was, it was, he would come, he would listen to us rehearse, he would sometimes give us uh, ideas about what, but mostly he was just, he was just so pleased. We were doing the music and as far as he was concerned, doing it well, I guess, because, you know, he was always very complimentary about, about uh, our performances. So it, he wasn't living here in Buffalo, so it wasn't that same kind of relationship. 
I had working with Lucas and with Marty, who lived here, and I saw, you know, practically daily. Yeah. So, but but uh, no, but with John, many 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 years of, of doing his music, and he asked me to do certain uh, performances, and uh, sometimes we and uh, you know doing those recordings of his music with uh, other people. Uh, it was always a, a fantastic experience. Um, the third construction, I think we did probably the first modern performance of it after it had been in the catalog for years and years, but CF Peters never re, was never available. You know, I right. would always keep checking and checking and checking. You remember those old CF Peter, uh, when you've got a, a piece from them, they had like the whole cage catalog on the cover of this. Right. Uh, and, and of the cover of the particular piece. And, you know, we kept studying that and we'd find these pieces and then contact Peters and they said, well, it's, it's being autographed and it's being copied and it's not ready yet. But then finally, Third Construction came uh, came out and I think we did it. Uh, and I remember doing it for him here. He heard us playing and I, I remember his, he had a fabulous laugh and a wonderful uh, smile. And when that he heard, he hadn't heard the piece, I'm sure, since the 40s. And when the conch trumpet came in at that one he was just he thought that was the greatest thing so <laughs> you know it was it was he just it was just a so such a special uh, special repertoire to do and and to be involved in doing yeah, yeah. so yeah. Great. Well, Great. you mentioned you mentioned Morton Feldman. Of course, he's uh, next on my list here, and uh, you must have gotten to know him quite well. And I found on the the archive in Buffalo there uh, of many like candid photos that you'd taken, and with titles like Morton Feldman in the swimming pool and <laughs> Morton Feldman with yeah, cows, yeah. and it's really yeah, charming. Yeah. He must have been quite a character. What what was it like to work with him? Well, Marty came in, in uh, mid seventies, I think seventy two, seventy three, something like that, as a visiting professor for a year, and they decided to offer him a full time position. And I had known more. I'd met Marty just in New York, briefly shook his hand, you know, at, at a concert here and there. But uh, I didn't really know him that well. But I knew his music pretty, pretty well. Uh, we were very, very happy that he he decided to come to Buffalo and. Uh, and live here and work here. And he was, uh, he w became the director of the Creative Associates, which was a natural thing for him to do. Uh, and so, for, and I was always involved with the CEAs in the sense of uh, it, some administrative work too. Or, and so I became active in, in uh, playing a lot of his music and we did a lot of his music here um, for him. and. He happened to like my playing, and he he and he liked your playing. Uh, you know, he he, he was uh, very supportive and asked you to do things. And he came to Buffalo from a, right off a DAAD fellowship in Berlin, and he had met a flute player there named Eberhard Bloom. He invited Bloom to become a CA, and so then that's and then his student at the time, Nils Vigelan, the composer and pianist. The three, the three of us started doing a lot of his music, and uh, and then he, and then Morton wrote those three trios for us. So right, and can and you, then we, can you mention we, those? Can you mention yeah, those three trios? Yeah, the uh, uh, Why Patterns was the first one, which is about twenty-five minutes, and uh, that's for for uh, flute, piano, uh, glockenspiel. Mm -hmm. 
then the second one a couple years later it was the mid 80s i think yeah uh or early 80s uh, a couple years later was cripple symmetry for the same instrumentation except the percussion on cripple symmetry is vibraphone and glock and that's uh about 90 minutes uh, and then the third p the third trio was for Philip Guston, which is uh, about four hours or a yeah. little more in length. Uh, yeah. wow. And the percussion set up there is vibe Glock, mostly vibe and Glock, some tubular chimes and uh, a few notes on the marimba. But uh, those those we toured a lot with him in Europe. He he was in big demand in Europe, uh, particularly Germany. So we got to go with him many, many times as the Feldman soloists hmm. to play. Uh, his, he would design programs around his music and uh, not, not only just his music, but a lot of New York school composers. You know, we did a lot of Earl Brown, Christian Cage, Feldman, but other Zanakis, Zanakis music. And so there, yeah, so those, those pieces were, were, uh, very very important to my career and and uh, and Marty was you know we very we were very close he I drove him to school a lot because he couldn't drive and uh, his eyesight was really too bad and so we were you know we were hung out a lot together yeah I read the article that you uh, interview that you did with him in the percussive notes Oh, yeah. um, it was in the early 80s, uh, yeah. and uh, it's a really terrific article, um, just a very candid conversation, but uh, in it you talk about a lot about um, the King of Denmark, and you must have played that piece many, many times. I wonder if you have any um, any insight about that. Yeah, The King was written, uh, I think Max Newhouse did the premiere on that, uh, in 64. Uh, I didn't play the piece until... Actually, Morty asked me, had some, we were going to Europe on tours, and he asked me, why don't you learn the king? Because we could do it on, you know, in Europe and around. I said, okay, fine. And generally speaking, if someone else was doing a piece, I, I didn't do it. You know, I mean, Max was doing Z-Clues, so I never learned Z-Clues, you know. It was just the way I was thought about things. But when he asked me to do the king, I said, fine, great, I'd love to, so... I, I did a version and and then yes played it a lot on tours and uh, my particular realization of it was inf influenced somewhat by the fact that I was touring it a lot in Europe uh, and other places uh, so I I made a kind of smaller version of it instrument wise because many times often. Uh, composers decide, or, or sorry, per percussionists decide to do big, big setups in that piece, right. and you can, you can expand the, the setup per, pretty much indefinitely. But I did a kind of basic setup, and uh, I really liked that actually, as it turned out um, musically to uh, the way it worked. But yeah, did the piece a lot, uh, recorded it a couple times, I think, and uh, it, it, it also was yeah, a, a piece I thought a lot about and. And, and really enjoy playing. Um, and he liked it, so you know, I got to do it a lot. <laughs> yeah, and it seems that uh, Morton Feldman's reputation has grown um, over, over the years since its passing, certainly. 
And those pieces in particular that you mentioned, the Y patterns and Philip Guston, and as he got on into his career, the pieces just got longer and longer and longer. I wonder if you could reflect a bit on his uh, his legacy in terms of how he's widely known now as opposed to uh, in, in those years and just what that means to you and, um, and what it's like to play these... Uh, Marathon pieces, you know, this four-hour-long piece. What does that What does that feel like for you physically, uh, for those audiences when it was when it's first done? Um, any of those things would be really interesting f- to hear about. Morton's um, wrote a lot of terrific music in Buffalo, and it was I think it was a really good place for him to be outside of New York, and he did an enormous amount of work here. His, back then. You know, he was better known in Europe than in the States, I think. He, he like Earl Brown, actually, and Cage, huge interest in, in uh, Europe, primarily Germany, uh, for, the, for this music. And producers at the radios in Frankfurt and Cologne, Berlin, they were... You know, they produced a lot of his, his stuff. Why do you suppose they uh, the Europeans had so much interest in, in that music back then? Because it was so different from anything that was coming out of Europe, actually, you know. It Just was, the freshness was, of I it. I mean, the... think, of, think about it. I think today Feldman's music is so unique. Oh, yeah. Unique sounding. And so his connection, his particularly his connection, and John's, too, to a degree, to the to the art world, to uh, painters, and John's connection to Merce Cunningham and modern dance. The Europeans just, I think, basically back then, it, it was such a an American experience, and uh, that they they really um, supported his work. Now that's changed to a degree, but and oh, also the, I think his larger pieces, orchestra pieces, would be done in Europe. They were not done very often in this country. Yeah. Now that's a that's a manifestation of the system. For example, in Germany, of of of, of publicly supported radio networks, mm-hmm. where they had. A, where the radio in Cologne had a new music department, you know, where they, that's what they did. And the orchestras played big pieces by everybody, you know, uh, and including Morty, where in this country, his music, those big pieces were, were rarely heard. Even here in Buffalo, the Buffalo Philharmonic did string quartet and orchestra, and they did, I think, the Swallows. Lucas programmed a couple pieces, big pieces of his early on, uh, but you know, not that much, hmm. not that much. So now, we, let's see, Morty died in '87, uh, and now, yeah, I mean, it's great. It's it's wonderful that you you're seeing more and more performances of the of of the chamber pieces, certainly. And um, I hear from people all the time have questions about those trios, you know. Sure. Uh, I'll get somebody who's interested in my take on certain things. And um, playing so much of his music, you get a kind of uh, 
and talking to him about it and hearing him play his music on the pian and the piano, you get a sense of the sound. You get a real sense of what the sound is that that Solomon sound. And most people, for example, try to play it too softly. It's not as soft as possible. It's it's just comfortably soft, kind of. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So those kind of performance practice things people ask me about once in a while. Mm -hmm. And can you talk about, uh, can you talk a little bit about the the idea of um, the feeling of playing this, uh, for instance, the the Philip Guston piece, the four-hour piece, and uh, and what that was like to do that maybe for the first time or play that for an audience for the first time and how, how that felt? A mega trip, man. <laughs> mega trip. First of all, you have to stand up the whole time. It's not really time to sit down. Right. Uh, Let's see. The first time we did it at North American Music Festival was the premiere in 1980. I have it here someplace. Where did I write it down? 84. Uh, and with Ivar uh, Mikashov doing piano, the piano part. Uh, but that, subsequently, it was Nils played. Okay. It's a yeah. It's it's just an a, an experience that is hard to explain what you go through. It's, yeah, you kind of have to be there. You know, <laughs> you, you have it. And the thing is, you have, it has to be, it can't be, you can't be working hard for four hours. Right. You can't be concerned with playing every note balanced exactly right or just about anything. You have to find a very comfortable you know, it's like one dynamic the whole time. You have to find a very comfortable approach to the to the and a group dynamic that you agree on, and then you just play it and it spins out and the time goes by extremely. You, I lost completely track of time. And in the premiere, we we never played a run through of the piece for Morty. You don't play a run through. You know, a rehearsal of a four and a half hour piece. Right. We would we would rehearse it in big sections, but actually when we actually played it for the first time, all the way through was at the premiere. And I remember asking Morty how Morty, how long do you think it is? How long do you think the piece is? We didn't know. And he said he thought just he had a sense like maybe two and a half. <laughs> so I remember just before we walked out on stage to play it, and um, all I remember is we played it starting at two o'clock in the afternoon, and it was, I remember the room we played it in at the gallery had big windows all around, glass windows, you could see this light it was beautiful, uh, that it was getting darker and darker during the performance. and. But I had no sense, when I walked off the stage at the end, when we walked off, I you know, I had no idea how long they'd been out there.
Yeah. And it was like four hours and 20 minutes, or four hours and 10 or whatever. Whenever we played the piece, we were within, I don't know, five minutes, maybe five or eight minutes hmm. of the duration. You know, um, The piece is not always, you know, vertically coordinated. It's kind of, it's three, three solos going on at the same time. So it's not like you are ensemble uh, in large sections. Large sections, there are, there is an ensemble, but on, in other large sections, it's more, you're more or less independent. So it's, uh, but it, yeah, it's a trip. I think we did the piece maybe 12, or maybe, I don't know, five, eight times, maybe recorded it once and uh, played it uh, and the audiences, oh great! I mean, the audiences uh, typically uh, would start, and then people would leave. You know, and and the program that uh, Morty talks about the piece, I think even the recording at UB, maybe that he, where he talks about this, uh, gives a kind of program introduction to the piece at the premiere, and he says, you know, if you have to leave, just leave quietly, and you know, come back later if you want. Go <laughs> a cup of coffee. Go get a cup of coffee. Come back. You know. Yeah. Uh, and. And so he, you know, that was uh, that was great. I mean, but the audiences would get smaller and smaller. Usually at the end, there'd be, you know, a half a dozen people maybe there. And that concludes part one of my conversation with Jan Williams on this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. I'm your host, John Lane. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. The show is now also available on Stitcher Radio. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at ThatJohnLane. You can find the show, links, and show notes on my website, john-lane.com. And find me on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. And I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.